Thank you very much, Ed. And uh, thank everybody. I thank everybody who's uh, expressed their condolences to me and to my family. If you just continue to keep my, especially my dad and my brother in prayer. Um, if you're uh, just joining us today, I want to welcome you. If you're sure, I see some faces I don't quite recognize. But then again, your masks are off. So um, I'm not sure how many of us are new anymore. It's going to take us a little while. But uh, if you're just joining us, uh, this Holy Spirit that woke Ed up um, in the middle of the night is what we're talking about, talking about him in the person of this spirit and his actions and what he does and what he does for each of us and where he dwells and, and all of those in the Gospel of John. Um, I think that if I could ever tell the spirit what to do, I would have told Ed, he told the spirit to tell Ed that maybe you should have saved that until after I was done preaching. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, it's okay. You know, it's all right. Uh, we accept him as he is. And what I pointed out to you two weeks ago about the spirit is that in this entire uh, teaching of the Trinity, God in three persons, not three gods, but one God, three persons, this entire thing I teased us a little bit that the one that uh, actually scares us the most, I'll just say that as Adventists, the one that scares us the most, of course, is who? The Holy Spirit. You know why? Because we can't nail him down. Well, I, I, I can't tell him to tell Ed to wait until after the sermon. It might be easier for Greg to preach if you wait until after the sermon. You make him cry before the sermon, and it might be hard. See, I can't tell the Spirit that. And I'm not going to tell Ed that he misinterpreted the Spirit. And I have to tell you that, that sometimes, in, in years past, I would hear somebody uh, stand up and start to give a testimony and say, the Spirit spoke to me. And I would feel kind of this discomfort go up in my neck. Be, why? Be, because I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, that's why. Adventists know what's going on, Right? We, we, we've got it figured out, 1260, 1844. Okay, we've got it figured out, 20, 2400. We've, we have it figured out, don't we? Spirit comes along and says, hmm, not so much. So I want to welcome you to the middle of this beautiful, beautiful uh, part of this beautiful, beautiful gospel um, in talking about God's presence in our lives the Holy Spirit, how it makes his presence universal, how Jesus' presence is not limited to Jesus' human body that was broken on a cross and resurrected and taken back to heaven 2,000 years ago. But he said that, pre that presence that was with those 12 guys is the same presence that you and I can have now because well, we've all been baptized into that presence. And the presence isn't so much in front of us, walking us, leading us. The presence is actually in us, he said. How much more intimate can you get than that? How much more does the Father want of you to be with you? You talk about 24-7. If he's dwelling in you, we're talking 24-7. And so where we left off the last time is 
this unique name that John gives the Holy Spirit, this, this parakletos, that, con, that com, combination of two Greek words, para, to, beside, and kaleo is to call. He's called beside us. The Spirit's presence is actually called beside us, one called to our side to be present with us. His presence in the flesh in Jesus is now his presence in you and me as his disciples. It's in his church. He's present. And if he is in us, what does he do? And that's how John begins to move on now. If he is present, if you by faith can accept that. How many here believe that God wants to be present in you? How many here believe that if you believe that, he is present in you? John now will begin to point to what that does for us. Not define it. We need to get away from definition. I've had, I, probably as a, as a pastor, that probably is the question that is asked me most often by those outside the church. Define the Holy Spirit. And I used to try because I'm an Adventist pastor. I know all the answers. So I had all the definitions. I used to try and then realized that that one paragraph doctrinal statement just doesn't cut it. So the first thing that the Spirit will do for us is to convict, to actually begin to help us believe what we're supposed to believe open up our minds to what faith actually can be, opening up to possibilities, and to give us what I would call a true sense of the character of God. Why? Because we're supposed to be the ones that are supposed to be out there being God to them, being Jesus to them, loving as we have been loved doesn't happen without the Spirit. Nothing short. Nothing short of that is acceptable to God. I've wanted you from before the day you were born. I, I, before the foundation of the world, I saw your creation, and I wanted to be with you. I've wanted to be with you ever since I can remember, and with God, that's a long, long memory. I want to walk with you. I want to talk with you. No matter what you decide, no matter what you decide about me, no matter what you decide about faith, no matter what you decide about whether or not you want to believe and join my body, I don't care. I just want to walk with you. I just want to be with you. See, I've become convicted of that. That isn't something that I just woke up and diligent study gave me. That isn't something that, that seminary taught me. It's not anything that all my Bible study in, in languages or anything else ever taught me. I never could have come to that conclusion without the Holy Spirit. There's a difference between being indoctrinated and being convicted. What Jesus does is convict. He doesn't indoctrinate. He convicts. See, he can't, he can't indoctrinate. Indoctrinate means presenting something on paper and having somebody else read along with you and maybe come up to, to a, a, an agreement or so. Jesus isn't that word on paper. Jesus is the word become flesh. It's a living, breathing relationship that he offers. Unfortunately, indoctrination, you could take the life right out of it, can't you? We. We. 
us. So as we move on, as he begins to, as John begins to speak more about the Spirit, we're in John 16 now. I will tell you this, that one thing that happened to me is time and some other things. I thought it was a good idea to try to tackle uh, a whole bunch today, to finish all of 16 today. So I want to tell you that today is nevertheless, I, will, I tell you, I won't ask the Father part one, okay? Next week, we'll get to the I won't ask the Father part. And I even wanted to come up with a new uh, scripture reading for today because this one went further, went better with next week. But Ed, actually, I'm going to keep it. it. It's actually, it goes to both. So next week, you don't even have to, you, you know, you don't even have to read the slide. It'll be Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 9. So in chapter 16, we go along, we go further on with Jesus describing this Holy Spirit. And like I said, he now begins to begin to think about you and me together, what does it look like? Ed, you and me together, what does it look like? And, and he told us one thing that it looks like. We wake up at midnight for what seems to be no reason. Why? Couldn't talk to you while you're asleep, so I'm gonna wake you up. So what, is this, what does this begin to look like? Jesus says to his disciples, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate, the helper, the comforter, okay, all right translations, by the way, all three of them, right translations of that. The advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong. Convict, that word right there, prove the world wrong. He's hinting that the world has a wrong idea about something. And I need to come and prove them wrong. I need to come and convict people that they're wrong about this. And what is it that they're wrong about? About sin, about righteousness, and judgment. These three things. The first thing he does is that the Spirit comes help cope with this grief. And what is the grief? The grief is that what the disciples feel as soon as he said the words, I've got to go away. I have to go away. We'll talk a little bit more about it next week, but it brings on an immediate grief. Wait a minute, hold, hold on a second. You said you would be with us always. What is this you're going away stuff? They don't get it. They don't understand so comforter, advocate, helper, the first thing that they do is they begin to comfort us about our grief. And maybe our grief has a little bit of something about what we feel about sin and about righteousness and about judgment. Sin is who we are. Can't get away from it. If we have a wrong idea of sin, we're going to have a wrong idea of everything that comes after that. You know the greatest heresy in the church is a wrong or inadequate view of sin. If you believe sin is a broken commandment or a bad choice and a break in commandment or a, a, a consecutive number of bad choices, you have an inadequate view of sin. See, and everything that, everything that you do, everything that we do as believers will be built on that definition of sin. Sin isn't a broken commandment. It was a broken relationship. We can no longer sin. We can no longer not sin anymore because of our nature. Our nature fell that day. 
fell from being created as completely selfless creatures to our nature turned immediately selfish. What'd you do, Adam? Wasn't me, it was her. Oh, by the way, you gave her to me. So no, it wasn't me, it was you. Sin. See, if you don't have a right definition of sin, then you don't have a right definition of righteousness. If your definition of sin is too shallow, then your definition of righteousness will be the same. It will be shallow. The teaching, the best teaching that that a human can come up with about righteousness is to do as many good acts, maybe, right acts, righteousness, acts of righteousness, as you did of sins. Balance out the scales. That's the best thing that human nature can come up with. That's the best plan right there. Because they don't have anything else, do we? And judgment? Judgment? How long has the church been teaching that judgment is bad news? Why? Because what happens during the judgment? God comes and he pours out his wrath. He's going to get his, isn't he? No wonder we need convicting. Who we've been teaching people of who God really is and what judgment really is. Judgment something to fear? It is if you have that definition of sin and righteousness, it is. Because even if you balance out the scales, can you do anything about the sin that occurred? Does an act of righteousness actually balance out a sin? No. And by the way, where did the world get the idea that that was what sin, righteousness, and judgment was about? Where do you think they got that idea? From the church. Because that's what we've taught. And I say we because this whole idea of balancing out the scales, this whole idea of living an act of righteousness to balance out a sin or whatever, I know some of us in our heads right now said, well, that's not us, we're Protestants. Ah. Did Protestants do away with that? Did Protestants begin to teach that? No, we have our own penance. We just don't call it that, right? I remember uh, Lee Vendon when he was here. And he was trying to encourage people who had not had a devotion in a long time. How many here have gone quite a while sometimes without a devotion? Yeah, we're the only ones. Everyone else is perfect. Sometimes devotion gets dried, and sometimes we get discouraged. Sometimes we get down. Sometimes we really just don't care. And guess what? It happens. It's okay. But he said, we listen to the wrong voice when it's time to do something about it. If we haven't been doing it, say we haven't, haven't been doing it. I remember one time at a, at a workers meeting, this poor, this poor preacher, this, this, this successful evangelist, if I mentioned his name, you would know who he is. It, this, this successful evangelist, this spiritual man who had been, who'd been all uh, workers meeting just you know, making the gospel so clear for us and everything, got up and finally confessed. He said, guys, you know what? He said, I haven't had a meaningful devotion in six months. He said, everything I've been doing, I've been doing with you, I've been doing based on, you know, on my reserves. He just, he just couldn't take it anymore. And he just blurted it out. He just confessed it to us. 
See, we listen to the wrong voice when it's time to do that. We listen to the wrong voice when it's time to come back. Because what Satan would do is Satan would say, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, Greg, if you, if you want to get back into it, okay, if you want to get back into it, you're going to have to give God something, just a little. What I suggest you do is be real good for about three weeks. Don't sin for three weeks. And, and, and then go back to having your devotion. That's what my devotion used to be like. My devotion was about what I brought to the table. I didn't want to come into God's presence if, 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 I, if I couldn't give him something. I didn't want to come into God's presence if he couldn't look at me and say, well done. When actually the truth about devotion is that every day that I come, I got nothing. I got no reserves. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will be filled Every day we are empty of the Spirit. See, because if we were full, if we had reserves, that means that if I've got reserves for Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, I don't have to come to him on Tuesday and Wednesday. See, and that doesn't cut it with God. God says, no, I, I want to be with you every day. So you know what? I'm going to make sure you're empty every day. You don't have to come to me. But if you do, I'll fill you. This is the best the world can come up with concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. By the way, it's exactly how a Pharisee dealt with sin. A Pharisee took sin and chopped it up into little manageable bite-sized pieces, took one sin at a time, conquered it, declared themselves righteous, and then pointed their sights on another one. Does it sound familiar? How many here have tried to climb Jacob's ladder that way? See, but the problem is you have to do the same thing with righteousness. You take righteousness and then you chop it up into little bits. Hoping to what? At best, balance out the scales. See, a Pharisee liked it because on the outside it looked good. On the outside, all of us who struggle and fail every day looked at the Pharisee and went, man, I wish I could be like that. He has got his act together. And what did Jesus call them? Whitewashed tombs. Everything looks good on the outside. Commandments in order. Tithes in order. Everything looks good on the outside. But pop the tomb open and take a sniff. Paul has that beautiful discourse in, uh, before he begins to give the gospel in chapter 3 in Romans. Halfway through chapter 2, he begins to do this list about what's wrong with us. There is nobody righteous, not one, because Israel was listening to Paul and looked at the Greeks, looked at the uncircumcised and said, well, at least I'm not like them. Paul said, well, you've got a problem too. And so he finally uh, fills it out, if you will, and he goes through all of these Psalms and prophets who talk about having absolutely no righteousness whatsoever. There is no one righteous, not one. There is nobody who seeks after God. Their throats are an open grave. Then he says, but now the righteousness of God is revealed. 
Pharisees like righteousness that looks good. So what would a Pharisee do? At best, do the good stuff to make up for it so he can feel good about himself. And unfortunately, when somebody decides to dip into self-righteousness to take care of sin, you with me now? What's the world's definition of righteousness? Self-righteousness. Based upon the letter, right? So when a Pharisee begins to do this, the problem is, the problem is judgment. He feels he's great as long as he does good, but the problem is judgment. And if he's judged well, the only way that he can look good is to stand next to people who don't look good. Meaning who? Sinners. I thank you, O oh Lord, I'm not like that tax collector over there. And by the way, the world is full of what? Sinners. Can you reach somebody with God's love if you're standing on their neck? And that's the horrible thing about self-righteousness. So do you see why Jesus says, I've got to come? I've got to be with you? I have to convict you of sin, righteousness, and what? And judgment. See, he says about righteousness, about sin, because they do not believe in me. The reason we believe what we believe about sin, that, that, that it can be chopped up, that it could be managed, you know, that, 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 we can, that we can do something about it. The reason being is because we don't believe in Jesus. All along through, through this entire gospel that we've been going through, he's been arguing with a group of people who simply do not need him. They've come to a conclusion that he can't be the Messiah because the Messiah came to save them from their sin and they're looking at him saying, what sin? I don't need saving from sin. I need saving from Rome. Do something about that and I'm with you. The worst thing about self-righteousness is that it convinces you you don't need a savior. I need to convict you about sin because I need to convict them about sin because they don't believe in who? They don't believe in me. They don't believe that I've come to forgive. They don't believe that I represent God's love for them. They don't believe I'm here because I love them. They only hear condemnation. By the way, when you're self-righteous, everything sounds like condemnation. Why? Because you live with it every day. You don't come to Jesus about your sin. Condemnation is waiting for you right around the corner. It's waiting for you to slip. And how long is it every day before we do? That's not gospel. That is not good news, <laughs> right? That's bad news. That's bad news. So at best... To the world, what he says is, and about righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you will see me no longer. Okay? I'm going to the Father, you will see me no longer. So what is it we know about Jesus now that he's gone back to the Father? What is the only thing we know about him? What's written about him, right? What's written about him? 
The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the chief priests have been arguing with him from Scripture. Descriptions of God written on paper. Are they a full revelation of who God is? No. There's a lot of questions about God when you read Scripture. How many here have questions about God when you read Scripture? If you don't, you weren't in Sabbath school today. Right, Sam? Jesus said, I'm going to go to the Father, and the only thing you're going to have about me is what other guys write about me. So at best, righteousness then becomes a side-by-side comparison to who? To him. How many here want to compare themselves side-by-side with Jesus every day? You leave him on the paper, that's what you're left with. Are you with me? If all you want to do is study about him, then that's what you're left with. You may not know it, but if all you do is study with him, if all you're going to do is read about him, then every day you're going to get up, not knowing, even knowing that what you're doing every day is trying to compare yourself side by side with him. And I tell you how deluded human nature is, is that there's quite a few people out there who believe they do compare side by side with him. So righteousness becomes this side-by-side comparison, either with the law or with what is written about Jesus himself. So again, I ask you, is that good news? Is that good news to bring to the world? Because then our message to a world of sinners is, don't worry, just quit sinning and look like him. And here's what he looks like. Guarantee you. The world can be pretty smart. They take one look at Jesus and say, forget that, I can't do any of that. And then what is the church's response? Well, you're gonna have to. You're gonna have to, and you're gonna need to do it real quick because it's quarter to midnight. So it's a faith. What does he have to convict us of? That righteousness by faith is the only righteousness there is. That if I believe, if I would believe, I can have his righteousness. I don't have to be compared side by side anymore. I can have his righteousness. He'll take Christ and put you in him like a book. He'll take you and your entire record of righteousness, self-righteousness, or no righteousness, and put you in the pages of Jesus Christ. So when the judgment occurs, all he does is open it up and there's one word in your record, Jesus. And again, I didn't wake up one day and find that in a Bible study. None of us will. We have to be, what? Convicted. Is faith a decision? Yes. We have to decide to have faith. But that's about as far as I'm concerned as human will will take you. Go ahead. That's all we do. Go ahead. After that, it's all who? It's all him. And I'm beginning to wonder about that, about that whole free will thing too. Because every day that I live in my sinful nature, I see what it does to my free will. 
Now, I'm not going as far as to say that God would infringe on your free will, no. But there has to be something more. And thank God, there is. There's him. Then there's Jesus, the Spirit says. Paul said it, and I believe he said it only because not he was a learned Pharisee and rabbi, learned at the feet of Gamaliel. This is not what he was taught. He was convicted of this. Because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more as death was exercised dominion through that one. In other words, when Adam sinned, he then passed that on, that nature he passed on to who? To all of us. So as he said, as much as trespass or death exercise dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace, the free gift of what? Of righteousness, exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now we're talking good news, aren't we? It's much better news. So sin, nothing you can do about it. I got good news. Somebody wants to do something about it. Somebody has done something about it. Somebody will do something about it. Somebody is doing something about it. Righteousness, you don't have any. Want some? Want the only righteousness there is? You have it by what? Faith. You have it. Do you believe it? You have it. What's left? What is the one conviction that's left? of judgment because the ruler of this world has been what? Has been condemned. See, we think that judgment is about us. We think that when God is going to pronounce his judgment on us, uh, on judgment day or whatever, that most people believe that it's about us. It's our judgment as to whether or not we were believers or not, right? No, judgment is about who? It's about the ruler of the world. Who is it? And he's been what? Condemned. The message about judgment is that if you've got faith, you have his righteousness, you no longer have your sin on your record, so judgment is good news. The only one that has to fear judgment is the ruler of the world. But not even the church taught that for 2,000 years. The church still teaches that judgment's about who? It's about you. Whether it's pre-advent, post-advent, it's about you. And Jesus said, no, you need to be convicted. Because <laughs> if you let me live in you, if you let me convict you if, you, if you just have the faith that you're supposed to have, then you will have the right view of judgment. You will no longer fear it. And by the way, you won't teach anybody else to fear it. The only one who needs to fear it is the one who's already been condemned. It is finished. Lucifer just pretends not to know it yet. Let him rant. Let him rave. He can't touch you anymore. It won't stop him, by the way. It won't stop him or his friends from harassing us all. So judgment should bring sorrow 
to those who are not convicted about sin and righteousness. Because by the way, even if you've balanced the scales, even if you've tipped the scales towards good and not right, what about those sins that are already there? Can you do anything about those? No, you absolutely cannot, can you? So judgment is still bad news, even to the self-righteous. So sin, righteousness, and judgment. Dr. John Pauline in his Bible Amplifier series on the Gospel of John writes about it this way. I love the way he puts it. These three terms deal with the past, present, and future of every sinner who comes to Jesus. Conviction, sense of sin. First of all, to those who think they are doing right in persecuting Jesus and his followers. So who would they be? Who would be the ones that that think that they're doing right by persecuting Jesus and his followers? And it, you, we have to go back to the beginning of the chapter when he, when he started it all by saying, I've said these things to keep you from stumbling. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, an hour is coming when those who kill you will think that by doing good, they are offering worship to God. It's not the world that necessarily that is gonna persecute you as a disciple, it's who? It's the church. The self-righteous will do that because they haven't been convicted about righteousness and sin and judgment. You with me? Dr. Pauline goes on to say that this sin, this one right here, is so clouded that only the direct presence of the Holy Spirit will be able to convict someone of it. Self-righteousness clouds the mind and the heart. Good people do not realize that they're not good people. Laodicea, the last church, says, I am rich and have need of, I'll change it to no one, including the Christ that they've locked outside the door. He reminds us that one of the clearest signs of the Spirit's presence is a strong sense of one's own defects. You want to know how well the Spirit is dwelling in you? You will have a clear sense of who you are, who you really are. Not what I've tried to convince myself that I am. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we what? We deceive ourselves, and the truth is what? Is not in us. That'd be bad news if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit's comfort that he brings. Why the conviction about righteousness then is so vital. Why he says about righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you will see me no longer. Listen to this. When Jesus went to the Father, he went to bring his righteousness back to the Father on our behalf. He stood before the Father and witnessed for everybody who would come to believe. His righteousness to our account. Then the Spirit, because Jesus stays, right? I am going to the Father. But the Spirit brings that righteousness back to earth for us. How do we know? As long as he's gone, that Spirit's presence is in us. It convicts us of judgment, not between sin and righteousness, but judgment of Satan. He's been condemned. He's been overthrown at the cross. 
we are comforted that we are no longer under his condemnation. This is where the Spirit begins the transition of presence to presence in us and to how he begins to affect who we are and what we believe. Real quick, the last passage here. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all what? Into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he'll speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The time has come to have it made clear to us that the Spirit is just like Jesus. Why? Because the Spirit is Jesus. It's His Spirit. Like Jesus, the Spirit guides into all truth. Like Jesus, the Spirit will teach them what they need to know. Like Jesus, the Spirit doesn't come to teach about Himself. The Spirit will always be focused on Jesus. The Spirit will keep the disciples updated on Jesus' work, revealing what Jesus is presently doing and will do. The overall work of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John shows us that there are no revelations to be found except those that concern Jesus. An obsession with the Spirit, in other words, trying to concentrate on one person of the Trinity, becoming obsessed with the Spirit and the Spirit alone isn't healthy if it doesn't lead us to Jesus. You with me? If it turns our attention away from Jesus, it isn't healthy. The Spirit is Jesus' representative or ambassador here on earth. When we listen to the Spirit, we're listening to Him. The Spirit is Jesus' successor for all His disciples. The Spirit does for us as if Jesus was actually here. This is why He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. I told you I'm going away, and yes, but I won't leave you as orphans. If you believe that the Spirit can dwell in you, then it's as if I'm here. That presence that you're reading about from the first generation with these 11 guys, and I say 11 because remember these last teachings in these last chapters, Judas has already gotten up from the table. Jesus said, would you like the relationship that the 11 disciples had? I would say yes, all of us would say yes. John would tell you no. John would say, no, you don't want the relationship because his message to us is we were there, yes, we had his physical presence, but we ended up not believing. Right? Just as he's speaking these words right now, what are gonna be their reactions in the next 24 hours? Reactions of those who believe? No. They'll take their, they'll take their side on those that won't believe. But thanks to the Holy Spirit, it doesn't matter. His presence is his presence. John says, his presence in you today, you guys, 2,000 years later, you guys that are still reading my words, I'm here to tell you, it's better for you. Blessed are those who believe yet haven't seen. Because our conviction comes from what? 
Not from a, a physical presence, not from a physical presence being within, but a presence actually within. Not learning from without, but learning from within. And I'm not going to walk away from here thinking that I explained to you the Holy Spirit. Because he can't be explained, can he? He can't be defined. That's his beauty. That's his beauty. Let me try and give you just one example of what the Spirit actually can do for us. And it'll kind of lead into what we're talking about next week. And... uh, I hope that this is the spirit because I don't have it written down. I heard it in Sabbath school. You talked about the flood, didn't you, Sam? When we have questions about God, what is the one story that usually is at the top of the list that we've got questions about? It's the flood, isn't it? See, you have Jesus. Everything that we know about him. By the way, everything that we know about him today, even after learning about him, singing about him, uh, uh, reading about him, everything that we've done today, praying to him, right? Say we got everything that we know about him today, by the way, is not what you will know about him tomorrow. Because if he lives with you tomorrow, you're going to know even what? Even more. Amen? But let's go with what we know today. Is it easy? Is it easy to put Jesus on wherever the flood was directed from? Is it easy to picture Jesus on the throne directing the flood? See, but the Holy Spirit says, yeah. The Holy Spirit says, that is Jesus. See, and the thing is, and and this is what got us in prayer meeting, is is that now when we go back to these difficult passages, and I'm not not picking on on the Hebrew scriptures, I'm not picking on the Old Testament, because there's plenty of difficult passages in the New Testament, aren't there? Plenty of difficult passages. Plenty of times that the church didn't act in accordance with Jesus, but there it is, right there in the Bible, or at least what we think should be enacted with the uh, accordance of Jesus, according to Jesus. But the flood is just one of those stories. I'd like to think that the Holy Spirit about 10 years ago or so began to convict me that if I'm looking at a God of compassion and mercy, that the flood is not incongruent with a God of compassion and a God of mercy. Why? Because of what we know about sin. See, the one thing that the scriptures do reveal to us in Genesis is that the very first generation away from the original parents, the very first generation, the first murder is committed. And they're both brothers. You know, sometimes I like to ask the question, why did Cain murder Abel? And what are our answers? Right, jealousy, so forth and so on. He killed him for nothing. He killed him because he, he, didn't, he, he didn't think he was as good as him. He killed him because he didn't think God would accept whatever it was they were doing. It was his nature living in him again. He killed him for nothing. First generation of what sin can do to humans that were created in the image of God. In 10 generations, 10 generations 
God pronounces that the, that the evil in man's heart or that man's heart is only evil continually. Ten generations away. Just ten generations. And he says the earth was filled with violence. In other words, the earth is doing what, it do, what it's supposed to do after the fall. It's truly cannibalizing itself. After 10 generations, it's only evil continually. After 10 generations, there are only eight heartbeats left on the entire planet who are prone to listen to God. Is he going to be able now to hold out the fullness of time? Is he going to be able, is time going to be able to hold on for what? For another 6,000 years? Eight heartbeats? The world filled with all the violence that humanity can bring. Six thousand years, I don't think we're looking at six thousand seconds. So God does what he has to do. He buys humanity time. The flood's an act of mercy. If he doesn't do something, we never meet Jesus. The world never does. And by the way, salvation still, still hinges on him. He doesn't change the rules in the middle of the game. It's an act of mercy. Now I begin to see Jesus on that throne. Now I begin to see him watching over humanity as loving as he always has. And if you want to go one step further, if it's still not enough mercy for you, if you want to go one step further, remember this. The only thing that we know about all the people that died in the flood was that they died the first death. That's all we know. Right? Does anybody here want to look me in the eye and tell me that everybody who died in the flood is lost? Because we don't know, do we? So what do I see? I see mercy. Because I have to tell you, especially after last week, every day I believe that the first death is one of the most beautiful mercies God ever gave humanity. My brother's demons can't harass him anymore. The cancer that took Kenneth can't eat at him anymore. First death is beautiful act of mercy. What happens after that is all left up to the most merciful being that we ever could imagine by conviction of the Holy Spirit. Anything after that is up to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't fall short. I don't know about the people in the flood. I don't know about my brother. What I do know is this, is that all the demons that chased him into that grave are kept at bay now. And he sleeps, a beautiful sleep, which he hadn't known for a long time.
first death and the second death is more than a doctrine. You know, we, 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 we take the idea that uh, the first death and the second death and the Adventist teaching and we don't believe in everlasting hell. Why don't we believe in everlasting hell? Because that isn't God. That isn't the God we know. That isn't Jesus. That's the, the biggest evidence there is. But what have we done? We've taken it, we've made it a doctrinal point. And we've made it so we can be better than someone else's teaching. I can't do that anymore. None of us should be able to. Death has touched us all. And maybe if we taught, you know, our idea of soul sleep, maybe if we taught that, that there isn't anywhere you can go to, to escape God's presence. There isn't anywhere you can be. Even in the grave, his presence is there. And it is there because I read about it at one time. But I believe it because he lives in me and he convicted me. And he'll do the same for you. I know that he will. And when he does it for all of us, we all get to do it together. We have to mourn together and to grieve together. And to be that mercy and that grace to each other. When we begin to do that, people will want to join us. People are going to want that. In a little while, you'll see me no longer. And again, a little while, you will see me. Jesus' words to us today. I want to thank him for reminding us of that.